even have a matchmaker. Welcome to Subtitles, where we spike the canon in music and movies. In each episode, we will offer up replacements for each title in the top 100 of a well-known, well-regarded ranking, and we'll walk away with a pair of subtitles which we think deserve more acclaim and to which attention must be paid. I'm Tim. I'm replacing the entries on the 2007 AFI 100 Years 100 Movies list, starting with number 100 and working up. And I'm Matt and I'm replacing the top 100 entries on Spin Magazine's 2015 list of the top 300 albums from 1985 until 2015, starting with number one and working down. Here's how this works. The two of us have gone through each list, decided on a theme of the original entry, and have come up with a pair of potential replacement titles which share that theme. We'll talk about that original entry. Sometimes we'll regret that we have to get rid of it, and sometimes we'll rejoice in being able to drop it. But this podcast is not just another dissection of an outmoded list. In part one of this episode, Matt had two new albums to talk through, and I made my choice for the subtitles album list. Now in part two, I have two new movies to discuss, and Matt will decide which of them deserves a place on the subtitles movie list. Sometimes I'll have listened to the album, sometimes he'll have seen the movies, but at the end of the day, what matters is how well we've sold the titles. And at the end of some of those days, one of us will want to bop the other for that choice. Once we finish these lists off, we'll do some fun activities with these new lists we've collaborated on. But before we can get there, we have to do this. Today's title to be replaced is the a little bit unexpected 1960 Stanley Kubrick uh, Swords and Sandals movie Spartacus, uh, which I guess Stanley Kubrick has entered the chat, right? Like that's kind of... um. That's kind of the message I get from this. What I really like about um, about this placement is that I'm pretty sure they've got this as the fourth best or fifth best. I can't remember which, um, but it's one of those. They're saying this is either Stanley Kubrick's fourth or fifth best movie, which is a take. There have not been a lot of takes on the AFI list so far, but I am really enjoying that there is a very strong take uh, being proffered here as regards Spartacus, um, which is a which is a movie um, which I think they've also done right to put it above the other Swords and Sandals movie uh, on the list that is Ben Hur. Um, so this is the the highest rated one of those movies. It's it's the only pair of them that we have here. There is no. Uh, no room for either of the DeMille Ten Commandments. There's no Samson and Delilah. There's no Quovetus. There's no Cleopatra. Um, and for what that's worth, I think they are probably right. So some praise for AFI to start with. Um, before we get into this a little bit further, um, Mad Spartacus is, is one I know you have, you have worked with before, I guess, or seen at least. How long has it been? Seen, yes. Worked with, definitely not. Um, it has been since college, I think, when I was on a I Should Watch All the Kubrick Movies kick. Um, so it has been a hot minute, and I'm not going to say it's one I remember totally well, but I, I have seen this one, yes. What surprised me, because I hadn't seen it more than once before this, and, and like you, it had been a really long time. Um, I watched this... <laughs> You know how, like, occasionally you'll, like, really have a strong memory of, like, where and when and how you watched a movie? This was in a weird week in which my school district, like, canceled every other day of school because of, like, snow. So it wasn't, like, normal. And they didn't just, like, let it go. <laughs> they just, like, brought us back and forth. So it was in that week, and I was making white chicken chili with my roommate, and we watched Spartacus. Because I guess we had the time. Um, and the first time I watched it, I was like, okay, this is a good movie, a great movie, I don't know, but, like, let's check this off my Kubrick list, basically. Like, sort of a similar idea to you, that, like, you try to see all of them, because there's a manageable number, they're all good, and you, like, you know, you you say you've, like, got the 100% on it. And then I watched it again recently, and I was really taken with you know, how good it was, and not just, like, how good it is, but, like, 
how really good this movie is. Like, before, I'd sort of just sort of plopped it down in the bottom the bottom third of, of my Kubrick rankings just because I was like, well, you know, is this really going to be as good as something like Paths of Glory, let alone Dr. Strangelove? Um, and I'm still there. I think I went back and, like, redid my Kubrick rankings, and it is still, I think, in the literal... Um, bottom third or very close to it, mathematically speaking. But it's it's a movie which, if you gave it to many, many other directors, this would very easily be a top half of their career movie. Um, and it's different than, than I remembered. It's got that Swords and Sandals three hours and, and change length. It's got the battle sequences, it has the costume drama, it has people with funny names, it's got a cast with a gazillion people, and and you've probably even heard of half of them. Like, all of those things are in there. Um, but what's really special about it is that I think this is a really balanced movie. Um, something that I, I definitely remembered more of than there actually are, there are not that many battle scenes in here. Like, Spartacus is, is brought up as a a remarkable self-taught field general for like two solid hours of this movie and you see him in battle like twice maybe like you really do not witness a lot of that um screen filling uh extras out the out the wazoo kind of um kind of experience you, you don't have as much of that in this movie, a lot of the combat is definitely more focused between individuals, which is a really cool choice. Um, a lot of the the stuff that really works about this too is exactly where a movie like Gladiator like implodes, and that's in the political plotting. I think that this movie does a really outstanding job of creating three sides. On one side, you have Spartacus, who's like honestly sort of the B plot of his own movie. He's off rampaging around the Italian peninsula and doing his own thing and making love to Gene Simmons and being friends with Tony Curtis and making deals with pirates and all of that stuff. Like, he's doing his own thing and he's really very much out of the out of the thrust of where the movie's going. And then on the other hand, you have the real conflict for, for most of the movie, and that's between Crassus and Gracchus, uh, played by Laurence Olivier and Charles Lawton, who are two of, I don't know, they're very easily two of England's finest movie actors who, who ever worked. Um, and you have Olivier, who is this, you know, he's still extremely good-looking and in incredible shape and so handsome, and, and he is this unnervingly blue-blooded, unnervingly cold character uh, who is always out for his own benefit. And on the other side, you have Gracchus, who is just this fat slob who the people love, uh, but who is also incredibly crafty, who is, who is, you know, fat because he likes food, not fat because he can't keep track of the calories. Like, there is, there is a very strong battle being waged between the two of them, but at the same time, they both agree that Spartacus has to die. Like, everyone besides Spartacus kind of agrees that he's gotta go. Um, but that's that's not really what you'd expect the movie to be about, given that it's, you know, called Spartacus and that Kirk Douglas gives a really I mean, just as good as Olivier and and Lawton in this movie. Um even though he's not doing a lot of the things that I think about making Kirk Douglas great. Like so much of what made him wonderful in, in other movies was this ability to kind of like wink at the audience a little bit. He has this sort of sly drawl that he can he can play on, and he doesn't do that very much. He plays Spartacus pretty straight in this movie, and it's it's just purely a question of he has the screen presence to pull it off. And I don't know. To me, it's it's that balance between the the three of them that makes the movie really great. Um, and you don't need Kubrick for that. You could just as easily have had William Wyler, who directed Ben Hur, and get something similar, get a get a similar product. Um, before I start getting, you know, the before I wax rhapsodic about how beautifully this is shot, is there is there anything you need to add or or comment on about this? 
<laughs> I'm excited for the waxing now, but I, <clears throat> I don't know. I was thinking of what you said about, you know, if you hand this to anyone else, it's going to be the top half. And like one, how, like I watched this and remember thinking, oh, this is good, and it's interesting that it's more political than anything. But it seems to me now that it that I should rewatch it because um, I feel like I would have a sort of different opinion now, like you had on the second watch. Um, it's not one that I've given much thought to over the years, even if I watched. It's like, oh, that was good. That was entertaining. Like, good movie. Coop, like, it's Kubrick. It's going to be a good movie. Um, <clears throat> but just thinking about that sort of approach to it where Spartacus is gone so often and how that's... I don't know. Like, I don't... I just don't imagine many people now making that sort of movie with that sort of focus. And whether that's personal decision or, like, company or you know, production house pressure. Um, it just seems sort of antithetical to how this movie would be made now. Like if you told me there was a Spartacus movie coming out next year, I wouldn't expect Crassus and Gracchus to be like so much a focal point of it. And I think just in general, having Olivier and Lawton <clears throat> kind of battle in that way is, that's just really fun to me. Um, that's not a profound observation. That's just, hey, let two really good actors cook. <laughs> and and they are both absolutely cooking, which is, I mean, I don't know. People don't usually talk about Kubrick as a director of actors because people are always so interested in him technically and because his his best movie, the most famous character from that is a red, black, and yellow circle. But like... <laughs> This is somebody who really was, I think, very good at, at letting actors kind of find their way into the role or, or giving them instruction to get them into the right spot for it. Like, there are a bunch of terrific performances that come out of Kubrick movies, and a lot of those are, like, kind of in the same period. Um, he's a guy who had worked with, with Douglas before. Um Another movie where Douglas is playing surprisingly straight with surprisingly few winks or nods. Um, but again, because it's Kubrick, we are very, uh, very cognizant of the camera. Um, and this movie has a number of really exceptional wide shots that I really love. Um, Kubrick has a way with, uh, with arraying men for battle. And, and just pulling ourselves all the way back and and seeing what that looks like and seeing the geometry of it and seeing what it is that people like about that so much. Uh, because there's a reason people like war so much. And part of it is this sort of pageantry and the straight lines and, and this uh, great intake of breath. And you see that in this battle sequence uh, at the very end of the movie. The only, again, really the only battle sequence we get is one that Spartacus loses. Um, and the the most striking shots of it are the ones in the aftermath of the battle where you can't walk across the ground without stepping on bodies. Like, that is a much stronger image uh, itself, as good as that set of establishing shots are. Um, that's a much stronger image in a, in a much closer, closer vantage point than anything that happens before or during the battle. The shot that sort of speaks to me and the one that reminded me in the first hour or so that I was watching a Kubrick movie, and this is going to sound really, I don't know, this is going to sound weird because it's not like a famous one or anything. This is not one of one of the ones you'll find on like your, your screen rant top 10 Stanley Kubrick uh, screen grabs or something, but there's a, there's a part where... Crassus is coming to the gladiatorial school, which is run by Peter Ustinov, who I like kind of forgot was in this until I said this, but he's also really wonderful in it. Um, and he comes to the gladiatorial school and it's another, it's another wide shot and you see him riding the horse and you see him wearing white. And that is everything you need to know about how important he is and how how different from everyone else he is, because at this point you've had it pounded in your head over and over again. Everyone else is in tan, beige, darker colors, something. A lot of people are just like, you know, skin because it's, because it's poverty, because it's the past, because, you know, dye would be expensive. And here is this one person who from hundreds of feet away, 
you can't tell anything about who he is. You can barely get a sense of how old he is. You can't tell what he looks like. But you see him come off his horse and wearing that shining little pinprick of white. And you just know, without having to know anything else about the character, that that guy is going to matter. And that nonverbal way of telling the story is what directors ought to aspire to. Being able to give us that information just to let us read the screen. This, to me, that's a really special thing that he does. Um, there's another very famous moment, and this is kind of like the the special the special shot from this movie. But the first uh, the first time that we see Spartacus in battle is when he's fighting another future gladiator, um, a guy named Drava, played by by Woody Strode, and Woody Strode's character defeats Kirk Douglas's character, like just. You know, he, he outfights him, he beats him, and he looks back at Crassus and his friends and asks essentially the question, like, should I kill him? And they say, yeah, you should kill that guy, and he refuses to do it because he has enough nobility and and sense of class and place to know that there's no reason he should kill one guy because someone who's rich wants him to kill him. And so we get the cut away from Strode's face, and the camera... Uh, is in the box where the rich Romans are watching from and Draba throws the trident and it almost hits the camera and that is one of those incredible moments that is emotional and meaningful and it's such a middle finger but it's also an incredible use of the space that he's shooting. You can see all of the all of the levels from foreground to background and see how clearly that trident travels and how quickly. And that in itself is its own, like, sort of, you know, most of the way to genius filmmaking. And those moments in the first third or so of the movie give you a sense, like, this guy knows what he's doing. Like, this guy, like, really, really gets where to put his camera, understands where to put it for effect, not just because it'll look cool, or not just because it's tricky or, or artsy or something, but because it's it works because it makes you feel the movie better and it invests you in it better. So that's, that to me is like two of the, two of the wonderful uh, moments from this movie that let you know that the guy behind the camera, even in, at a fairly young age was, was flexing in a serious way. Students get mad at me for the whole show. Don't tell edict, but it's around for a reason. And, <laughs> Like, you lose a lot of your mystique and power if you have to look at me and say, this guy's really important, instead of just giving me a shot where I realize, oh, that guy's really important. So, I mean, Kubrick's just so good at that. I'm tempted, after after being ambushed with your What's Your Favorite Pixie song, I'm, like, tempted to ambush you with a What's Your Favorite Kubrick movie, but but what what do we got here? Favorite? Um, I mean, 2001's the best one. If you just told me I, I get, like, I sit down and watch just one, pick one, probably Strange Love. All right. That's, that's interesting. It's not a bad choice, obviously. I know I sort of dodged the question a little bit there and just gave you two answers instead, but I, I think 2001's the best one, but... Like, if I just got to sit and watch one right now, I'd probably pick Strange Love. Um, and I did count, if I counted correctly, they have named Spartacus the fourth best Ooh. Kubrick movie. Which I love it. I love that flex. <laughs> <laughs> it's just such an incredible, an incredible thing to say, because no one, no one is sitting there thinking to themselves, Spartacus is Kubrick's fourth best movie. And not even because this isn't a great movie, or not even because everybody's got the same top four or something, but only the AFI could come up with Spartacus at four. I'm actually, I think it's really cool it's on this list. It's like, it made it made a buttload of money, and it was a serious challenger for lots of Oscars that year. Like, I definitely understand what it was doing there. Uh you know, from the perspective of the AFI picks popular award-winning movies, but at the same time, like, 
you could do a lot worse picking popular award-winning movies um, from American history, and of course the AFI does. But this one is this one is really um, I don't know. It's it's kind of underappreciated in its own way, just because it doesn't feel super Kubricky to people who love him because of Strange Love or because of The Shining or because of 2001. And for that reason, I think it doesn't get quite as much credit as it probably should. It, it's surprising, but it's good surprising to me. Like, <clears throat> I look at it and go, that's unexpected, but also go on. You have my attention. <laughs> I, I'm mostly just glad it, like, the flex wasn't full metal jacket. Like, that would be my fear. But I, I'm just sort of pleasantly surprised to see Spartacus here. But I'm going to turn this back on you. What's your favorite Kubrick movie, Tim? I'm sure it's on your blog somewhere, but... I think my favorite Kubrick movie is probably 2001. I just I just have a really strong personal relationship with that one. Like, I had a, um, I had a class in high school where we watched that, and we, like, really... It wasn't the point of the whole class, obviously. I'm making it sound like that was, like, the whole thing. But, like, we watched that, and my teacher really did a good job of, like, not letting us flounder with it, essentially. Like, he really, like, made it made it accessible, at least as accessible as it could be over the course of, like, days and, and you know, for a 15, 16-year-old. So that was, that one I sort of have a lot of fondness for, um, aside from the fact that I think it's, like, basically untouchable um but yes i feel like i was gonna go ahead and just do a stanley kubrick discussion because i am a white man in my early 30s um do do you have any objections to me just sort of doing this for a minute Uh, as another white man near his early near his early 30s i no (laughs) go ahead i'll probably have thoughts so Stanley Kubrick, like I said, he's entered the chat. He's here. Uh, he he may not literally be the greatest director in American film history, but I think the mystique of the guy is stronger than um, stronger than any other American directors has been. Maybe even more than any other American directors can be in the future. Like I, I genuinely kind of think that he is not just like a mold breaking talent. But the kind of director he is, um, someone who just, you know, you look at the the number of movies and when they came out and how infrequently and how much creative control he kept over them um, and how different so many of them are in terms of genre. Like, there are things about him that I don't think are replicable. Um, And there are things about him that I think just attract people who really get into movies and I'm not trying to sound like the circle jerk people who that Reddit's, uh, that subreddit make fun of. Uh, this is not going to end with me saying, and Christopher Nolan is his heir. But like, there is something genuinely special about the guy. And and what's special about him is amplified by, you know, how little there is of him, relatively speaking. So he is a guy who made 13 movies or at least 13 narrative features. There are some little documentaries, some short docs early on. Um, It's a career that spans 40-odd years, um, and of those movies, six of them were made between 1953 and 1962. So he was making movies at the pace of basically everyone else for the first 10 years of his career, and then in the rest of his life, he just kind of, like, slowed all the way down. Um... When he was in his early 30s, he was already a fairly successful movie director, and he moved to the United Kingdom, and he stayed there the rest of his life. Um, I've always thought that this made him the T.S. Eliot to Alfred Hitchcock's Auden, so if you really want to sit at home and think about that for a while, you're welcome. Um, Yes, I do. (laughs) He also triggers for me, and this is something that I'm going to talk about later, like later in other podcast episodes, but because so much of his work was done in England at English studios and like with English actors, there are a lot of his movies that I have a hard time deciding. Are they American? Are they English? Um, 
there are some of them that I think are absolutely English. And, and that's something which, uh, the AFI doesn't always agree with me with, but I know that especially in the seventies, I definitely think Clockwork Orange is an English movie. I definitely think Barry Lyndon is an English movie. And that's not something that the AFI agrees with me on because they've got, uh, Clockwork on their list. I don't know. I just, this is something that I am, I am always a little nervy about, but you could make a very good argument that a movie like Strangelove is English, that a movie like 2001 is English. Um, and essentially the reason I think 2001 is an American movie is because everyone else does just because it's on all the American lists and not on the British lists. I don't know. It's weird, but that's what I have basically. Um, he has the four titles on the AFI list. He is famous for being able to, to move from genre to genre. Um, I went ahead and like made a list. There is an argument that he made a top 10 Anglophone movies in the following genres. Uh, war, courtroom drama, noir, horror, costume drama, psychological drama, dystopian future, science fiction, and of course, in this case, swords and sandals. Um, and, and that's kind of the, the reason why I'm talking about Kubrick so much is because the swords and sandals really feels like the one that doesn't belong. Um, it's the one that feels a little weird compared to the other ones. And so the theme this week in honor of Spartacus and, and of Kubrick is directors out of type. And I don't mean that this is an out-of-type movie for him, because like I just spent 20 minutes talking about, I feel like this is very obviously a Kubrick movie. There are lots of his touches in here that I think are are very distinctly his, and that he is a significant, maybe even the single biggest reason, why I think that's such a good movie. But it's also not one that I think is very him in the way that, you know, 2001 is very him or The Killing is very him, or Eyes Wide Shut is definitely him. You know, <laughs> like, there are, certain, there are certain movies that definitely have that stamp, and this one feels less like Kubrick the auteur. It feels like one of his movies, but it is not his in that, like, bosom of Abraham kind of sense. And so we're going to look at two other directors who also made movies, which I think are very much theirs, which I think are very much reminiscent of, of their own styles and their own concerns and everything like that. Um, but I, I also kind of feel like they're outliers in the career. So the first one we're going to talk up is John Carpenter's Starman from 1984. And the other one is David Lynch's Disney movie, The Straight Story, from 1999. Um, they are both streaming right now, which is kind of fun. Starman's on Prime, and Straight Story, of course, is on Disney+. Plus. So when you're done with all of the Pixar movies and all of the MCU, you can go ahead and watch, watch David Lynch make a movie about a guy riding a riding mower across straight, uh, state lines. Um, before we got on, you said you had not seen either of these, but before... Before we get to Starman in any event, is there anything you would like to to say about Carpenter to set a mood? Oh, boy. Um, you are getting me back for that Pixis thing. <laughs> um, well, I know you like him so much, so I figure that that actually felt like not, not you know, just like ha-ha, but like... No, it's not ha-ha. I just I <laughs> wasn't expecting it. Um, I'd say I... I wish he would star in a um, a biopic and play David Crosby because they look basically the same. <laughs> and yeah, I don't, I don't know. I just really like Carpenter. I I like. I think I have more of a thing for horror than you do. But that said, I'm not like at all <clears throat> the biggest horror aficionado. But Halloween to me is brilliant um escape from new york and the thing are both really fun big trouble in little china is just a hoot um we talked about that one right didn't we yes yes that was yeah. that was an early <laughs> subtitle i love that movie um i don't there's 
I guess. So if Kubrick is sort of a type unto himself and just taking on different genres as he sees fit, um, I think in Carpenter, right, there's a different, a definite vibe of Carpenter, but I think especially if you look kind of at his movies chronologically, <clears throat> he is really making kind of a genre or two or three or like sort of a niche concern his own and really expanding what those can even look like. Um and sort of taking more derided types of films, I think. Um, I don't don't mean to make him sound limited. That's not what I mean at all. But just, um, I I think there's a lot to say about Carpenter in terms of his expertise in deconstruction of something and how there's always this humor to him as well and, like, the sort of absurdism and funniness to a lot of it as well, too. so I think it's just a good case of like <clears throat> how to really expand what we can think of a genre flick and also how to put your own voice in that um, and that it doesn't have to be rote MCU movies or like that we can do something more um, interesting, even if they seem like uh, it's just going to be <clears throat> like a silly action flick or something at first. See, I'm glad you said the thing about the humor because my, my thing is for these two subtitles. I've got, what's different? And then the answer for John Carpenter is, this movie is not sardonic. Like, one of the one of the things that I think makes him really special is this ability to, to sort of approach B-movie material. Halloween is B-movie material. The Thing is literally B-movie material. Um, I mean, they live, the fog, B-movie material. Um, but like this, this is a guy who approaches it and has such a distinct perspective that, that you get the sense of there's something special going on because he sees something more interesting. I saw you like snarf when you, when you heard they lived, (laughs) did you have they live thoughts? I was just thinking of Roddy Piper and that and how that's like the ultimate sardonic (laughs) joke. Um. And it's good. Like, it works. Mm-hmm. And I don't, you know, how many people are going to see that? That, like, I can take Rowdy Roddy Piper and put him in a movie and, like, it's going to be hilarious and also work at the same time. I, like, I don't know. Carpenter just has a really interesting and, like, unique vision to me in general. <laughs> so I think when we when we think about him, there is that sort of, the way that they live ends, that bizarre, like, reveal that all of these aliens are wandering around Earth and you have all of these scenes of people realizing it and then it ends so abruptly, that's very Carpenter to me. Um, This very sardonic, this very dry kind of humor is in there. Um, The part in The Thing where Kurt Russell's playing chess with the computer at the beginning and like the computer beats him at chess and then he destroys the computer like just pours whiskey into it. Like that's a very John Carpenter moment. And there's so much of him in, and that sort of like winking sarcasm and, and just sort of, it's not misanthropy because I think he's genuinely pretty warm about human life and how it matters. But there's also like a dark humor aspect to this. Um, That is, I think it is such a signature for him and Starman is a movie that doesn't have that so much. I, I don't think it's really in this movie, uh, even though I think conceptually it's weird enough for, for a Carpenter movie. So the basic premise of this is an alien comes to Earth and he, by one way or another, he winds up in Karen Allen's living room. Uh, Karen Allen is playing a recently widowed woman named Jenny Hayden, and Jenny uh, is still very much grieving for her late husband, who looks just like Jeff Bridges, and the alien, again, who happens in there, um, sees some pictures of him, finds a lock of his hair, and decides he is going to appear to the humans as Scott Hayden, or in other words, Jeff Bridges. So... Essentially, a somewhat drunk and and bleary uh, Karen Allen 
walks into, <laughs> walks in, and this is a very car- Carpenter moment too, but walks into her living room and there's this strange misshapen baby on the floor that transforms over and over again and gets older and older until eventually it's just naked Jeff Bridges and it's kind of like blinking and like butting its head in her direction and seems very strange and is not human at all even though he looks just like her dead husband. Um, and from there, the two of them have a road movie. Um, he's supposed to get to Arizona. There is a crater there where his people are going to pick him up. Um, she is going to have to take him there because he is dangerous and won't say no, essentially. And over the course of a few days, she goes from, like, trying to leave messages that she's been kidnapped in every place she can, she can do to recognizing that she has an opportunity to work through the grief of her of her loss and this is a really special movie to me um and i think one of his best like this is a really a really wonderful movie because it really does play it pretty straight there are explosions there's some like you know there's a part where the u.s military descends on the two of them because again, that's a very carpenter thing for the for you know the the long arm of the law to come after our well-meaning heroes. Like that in itself is a very him thing to do. But I don't know. There's just something about this movie that doesn't it doesn't play sarcastically, even though it would be very easy for the relationship between the alien and Jenny to be played off as like kind of a weirdo thing. Um, like, you can imagine this is a screwball comedy. You know, this this woman whose husband has died has to drive an alien who looks like her husband across the country. And the movie doesn't do that. The movie decides, what if this woman who is still in a tailspin over the death of her husband, this an accident kills him and she's, like, not recovered from it, um, has ample opportunity to, like, say goodbye, basically. And that's where the movie ends, with her saying goodbye to him and him saying that, you know, we'll never see each other again. Um, But she is given an opportunity to say goodbye to someone she loves, even if it's just a replica of him. And that, to me, is just, like, this really lovely concept, which, again, I think is a fairly Carpenter kind of idea, too. Um, You know, there's it's not like we haven't had carpenter showing a strong women who you know need a boost or or have to overcome something in a way that's reminiscent of that like you can see that in halloween you can see that in the fog like those are those are things that are recognizable in his other movies and the idea of being on the run from the government is like (laughs) this is this is basically snake plissken they've got a sports car and everything but this is like dork snake plissken running around too um but it's it is a really a really lovely movie because so much of the the heft of it is is in this knowing understanding of what it is to find a very literal kind of catharsis, um, which none of us are lucky enough to have. But she is given this this gift that she doesn't understand as a gift until you know she's two days into the drive. Um, so not one you've seen. What else can I say about this movie? What what else do you need to know about? Um, it just sounds to me there's a very earnest heart to this one. That not that Carpenter doesn't have heart, but this um, it's perhaps a much more sympathetic take than a lot of what he's doing. And like, I, don't know, I guess as good as he can be is sort of capturing. <clears throat> Uh, weird pieces of the human condition or like general oppressions. Um, it seems like this is a much more individual story, but really speaks to uh, a reflection that most of us, if not all of us probably have that like, what if you had that dedicated time to say goodbye to someone that you've lost? Um, you know, that's what we always want is, is just more time to make it feel like the ending is right. Um and even if they never come back, like that can be a solace on its own. So, um, 
I don't know. I think taking away the wink, as weird as it is for Carpenter, like, I want to watch this. Like, this sounds exciting to me. It sounds uh, very heartfelt and almost like the impact is more because it's, you know, this is a, this is a director who knows his way around sarcasm and like to play this totally straight. That means something like there's an importance here that I'm not going to undercut. We're going to play this one serious. Um, I don't know. So I'm thinking about it in that way in terms of how it bounces off his other stuff. Um, And that I'm sure there are thrilling moments to it as well, but it, it's definitely hitting the sci-fi thing, but like it's avoiding the sort of thriller aspect um, that a lot of his other movies might tap into. Not totally, but it doesn't like. I don't expect to see this classified as like a horror or a thriller film in the same way that a lot of his other ones could be. So, like, even in that, it's kind of his unique little blend of sci-fi, action, horror, thriller type thing that a lot of his movies can get plucked into. Even if tonally they're a bit different, this one seems to like take some of that, but bristle against other parts of it. It's a pretty straight road movie for what for what that's worth. Like it starts off with the alien putting a map of the United States, like in laser light show form. Like it's very eighties, but like putting a map like up on her up on her windshield, and she has to like figure out where she's supposed to take him. Um, I think, for me, the standout moment of this movie, and I I feel like I tell everyone about this, but, like, there's this part of the movie where she is still trying to get rid of him. She is, like, they've been driving together for a while now, but she is, like, at this point, not hostile to him, not trying to get him caught by the government who are after him. But she she's just not ready to continue spending more time with this guy who, you know, is causing her pain to look at. And so she gets them to uh, to this little diner on the side of the road. Um, and she's like trying to map out the route for him. And she's going to like leave him the car and credit cards and like that kind of thing. Like she's ready to like kind of set him free. And while she's on her way out, while she's like trying to go out a back way she sees him out in the parking lot again. And before they had gone into the diner, he saw like a deer on the, on the hood of someone's car. And he's like, not happy about it. Like, he's like, why is that there? Like he doesn't, he doesn't understand what it's doing there. And while they were in there, he kept looking out the window and like taking little peeks at it. And she's like, no, you need to focus on this. The deer will still be there basically. And while she's watching from inside the diner, the alien brings the deer back to life and like essentially he has this, this power to do so. He has these little like infinity stones basically that he holds. And like, there are there are seven of them, not six, unfortunately, but or five, how many infinite? I don't, don't tell me, but like he has these, these little, these little circles, these little spheres and like, he'll hold them and he does stuff. All right. That's, that's how many, um, And he brings the deer back to life and he like takes it off the car and he sends it in the direction of the forest. And all this time, Jenny is just watching with this like enormous smile on her face because first of all, it's a miracle. And and second of all, it's, it's this incredibly kind thing to do. Um, this incredibly generous moment. And I don't know, there's something about that, which gets at the heart of that character the, the alien character that Jeff Bridges is playing. But it's also the first moment where she looks at him and, and like has this like genuine joy. Like this is someone she actually wants to see. And then of course they weave together. Um, I'm going to note that Karen Allen is spectacular in this. Um, she is so good. And I don't understand why everyone stopped putting her in movies. Like that is unbelievable to me because she's, she's so good in this movie. Um, but that's, that's like not a carpenter moment to me. That's not very him, but it is, it is executed so well that it has to be like, it's done so well. And it's, it's, it's made so well, um, where we really do see it from her perspective. We're watching this, like it's her and then cutting back and seeing her face in close of, like, this is our experience via her, and we are seeing this wonderful thing happen. And 
it's it's wonderful movie making and it does not remind me of anything that happened in Halloween. <laughs> it's basically I, I feel like it's rare in Carpenter's filmography that we get life rekindled or life given back rather than just utterly taken. Um, so that in itself is a really striking moment um, and hits all the harder because it, like, as you said, it, it is something that we see so rarely in Carpenter films. Um, all right. Our second movie, our other one comes from another uh, master of genre, master of weird, uh, the inimitable David Lynch. Um, and this movie I think I think the best the best thing I've got for it. If you ask what's different about this one, the answer is it's not weird. The straight story is not weird. It's not a weird movie. It's based on a true story. Not like he hasn't done those. But which which, which is that not the weirdest thing of all when we're talking about David Lynch? So the the thing is is that this movie I'm I'm kind of like spoiling my thing here, but like the movie reminds me a lot of The Elephant Man which is a movie I kind of thought about putting here. I really like The Elephant Man a lot. Um, the Elephant Man, of course, also feels very David Lynch. Like, again, not that not that his movies ever are not beautiful. Like, all of his movies are gorgeous in one way or another. But, like, The Elephant Man is calling attention to how beautiful it is in, in some places. Um, it's a movie where John Hurt was wearing so much makeup that they had to come up with an Oscar for it after the fact. Like, they were like, wow, we really wish we could give the guy who did this an Oscar, but we don't have a category for it. And then they made a category for it. Um, yeah, I mean, this is this is a, a movie in The Elephant Man, which I think is very Lynch, is really looking at an outsider and looking to see, can he fit in? Is it possible for him to you know, live with other people? Will they accept him or will the the shoe always drop later? And I think that is a very Lynch idea. And the fact that John Hurt's character is honestly really scary the first couple times you see him and then isn't scary later on, I think that's also, like, a very David Lynch thing. That's not so far away from a racerhead baby, like, if we're, you know, being real about it. But, like, the straight story is set in Iowa and Wisconsin. It was shot in Iowa and Wisconsin. It's about a guy who got on a on a riding mower and drove from Iowa to Wisconsin. And what they did was they filmed a guy on a riding mower driving from Iowa to Wisconsin. This is a normal movie. This is a deeply normal movie. It is like the simplest thing. Hey, hey, Tim. Yes. Where does it take place? It takes place in Iowa and in Wisconsin. Okay. Okay. But just barely. Like, they cross the Mississippi. Like, that's a big moment towards the end of the movie. But, like, it is it is a movie which... I mean, even the landscapes are sort of simple. Again, I I don't think I've seen someone shoot the Middle West like David Lynch in this movie since like Terrence Malick like he makes that look like Eden and he understands what what it's supposed to be and understands the incredible beauty of the place but at the same time there's nothing weird about this so I will I will summarize essentially an old guy he's in his early 70s um he doesn't walk well anymore um he has to use two canes to get around his name is Alvin Strait and he's played by Richard Farnsworth and he gets a call one night that his estranged brother, Lyle, uh, who is played by Harry Dean Stanton, uh, finds out that he's had a stroke and he's in the hospital. Um, and Alvin decides he's going to go see him. And this is a big thing because Alvin has not seen his brother in a decade. The two of them had some hard words. It's never really, It's never really said what they said, but we know that there was an argument that didn't go well, and so they haven't been in contact. Um, so he decides, I'm going to go see my brother. I'm going to, you know, make sure I see him at least once more before he dies in case that happens. But he can't drive a car, and he doesn't have a lot of money, so he gets on his riding mower, 
and he gets into like the next town and then his riding mower like dies on him he gets home with the riding mower he takes it out back and shoots it which is one of the funniest things i've ever seen in my life like he just sort of walks through a scene with a gun and the neighbor is talking to sissy spacek who's his daughter and eventually they like realize that he's walked through the room with a gun <laughs> she's like where's your dad going with that shotgun and we just see him take aim in the backyard and then the tractor like explodes into flame. It is incredibly funny. And then he gets a new one and starts over again. And this time he actually makes it all the way to, to Wisconsin, which is also where the movie takes place aside from Iowa. And uh, yeah, no, I realized that that has been, that has been in, in, in flux. Um, so the, the movie is, is a pretty, again, another pretty straight road movie. Um, another one where he, he is going along and he meets people along the side of the road. Some people stop for him. Some people he stops for. In one case, his riding mower's brakes go out and he like careens down a hill and he has to like stay in that town for a minute, um, before he can head on and he like makes friends with people in town. Um, a lot of conversations with strangers and over and over again, the movie is just normal people, normal Midwesterners. There's a lot of, like, Minnesota nice in this, I think. There's a lot of, like, that sort of hospitality and, and generosity of spirit that you, like, expect in Midwestern portrayals. I know. Which, living in that now, is <clears throat> quite honestly the weirdest thing of all for a northeasterner like it's it's genuine like these are nice people but it's suspicious so so to to build on this a little bit um when his when his riding mower careens out there is a a married couple who essentially is just like hey um i guess you've been camping out on this thing it's not going to work for a while if you'd like to camp out in our yard you know you certainly may because like he's very proud in that you know you know, somebody who was from the Depression. Um, we find out that he's a World War II vet. Like, this is a, a person who who is sort of stubborn and proud anyway. He is not going to take, you can stay in the house. But, like, he is someone who is is able to accept the courtesy of you can stay in our backyard, basically, and he'll accept that. Um, and there were just scene after scene of him interacting with people and, like, that kind of kindness is exchanged. Um, he manages to give really good advice to a pregnant girl who's running away from home because she's not sure what her family is going to do. Uh, he talks out his World War II experience with another vet in a in a bar, and, and the two of them say things to each other that they haven't said in decades. Like, it's, it's a really... I don't know. Like, it doesn't sound like anything happens in this. And nothing happens in this, and yet at the end of the movie, there is this incredible warmth that just sort of runs through you because of how kind and and deeply felt the whole thing is. Um, I was going to pause here and then go back to, like, the part of the movie I tell everyone about, so I don't, if, if you had thoughts, I was going to pause for, for things. Um, no, I, I guess I would have been interested to experience this in... 1999 uh before i guess mulholland drive and the twin peaks reboot <laughs> um I, it's just it's really interesting like i understand and believe what you're saying but i still find myself i guess because i'm broken by twin peaks at this point the whole thing but just like no there's something else like that's the whole point pastoral america is weird and like extraterrestrial and that like there has to be some other like mirror universe or something but um i think that's just what i expect from david lynch at this point um so i find myself still like fighting against that temptation here um but uh, what, what is the part you tell everyone about well here's what i would say to, to that first is that the weird thing the alienness of it is this guy drives his riding mower for six weeks like, he just is on the road, and everybody comments on, like, 
that's a weird thing to drive, or what are you doing, or why is that happening? And, like, every time he has to explain what's happening, and there's this this weird, repetitive quality to it that's funny every time out. And I think we're supposed to think it's pretty funny. Because there is a very old man with a, with a beard and his cowboy hat just sort of, like, puttering along the sides of interstate highways, like, just going chugga-chugga-chugga on this, like, five-mile-an-hour riding mower. And there is something very strange about that. The thing that I think is so special about this movie is at the very end of it. Um, he's been offered a ride because the place he's going is not all that far away from where his from where his mower um, very nearly gives up the ghost. So he is offered a, a chance just to like, hey, we'll drive you out to your out to your brother, and you don't have to continue on this relatively dangerous path. And he, he explains, no, I have to do it like this. He sort of is like, I have to go on, on this mower. That's kind of the point of it. He doesn't say that, but that's when we start to like really understand, oh, this is, this is about a guy who feels like he's done wrong. And so because he's done something wrong or feels like he has to make up for something, he has to do it the hard way. Like, there is a penance that he has to do. There is an atonement that is in this journey that he's making. Um, even though he is also not in good health. Like, one of the, f I think literally the first scene in the movie is him falling over and not being able to get up. And he, like, lies on the floor for two hours because he can't get himself up. Um, he's not in good shape either. But because he feels very strongly that he has to make up for what he's done... Uh, for the, quote, unforgivable things that he said to his brother, he chooses a hard way to do it that he can still accomplish. So at the end of the movie, he eventually makes it to his brother's house. Um, he walks up the steps, knocks on the door, gets... Um, and Lyle comes out, and, of course, Harry Dean Stanton being this guy is kind of perfect. Um, and he, he does the whole thing, too. He looks at the mower, and... We see him, we cut to the mower, and then we cut back to him, and he's asking, did you ride here on that? And Alvin says, yes, I did, and Harry Dean Stanton's eyes filled with tears because he realizes that his brother still loves him so much after all of this time, even after the bad things that they've said to each other, um, that he has put in so much effort and, and you know, struggle to do something so inconvenient um, because he loves him still. And, like, I've never thought of a tractor as being love before, but, like, that's what this movie asks you to do. It asks you to look at this riding mower and see it as the symbol of a prof profound fraternal love because that's what it is. And that's very David Lynch to me. Like, Lynch is, for all the weirdness... There is so often this moment of like, well, people are still good. Like for all the bad stuff that happens in Blue Velvet, it still ends with the little, the little Robin, the weird Robin. Again, there's never entirely an escape from weird, but like there's always the little bird singing and there is something of a happy ending there. Um, like even in, in what is probably his darkest movie on the whole, that still exists. Um, and that sort of belief in kindness or belief in relationship and family is, is part of his deal. It's not, it's not that this doesn't feel like a David Lynch movie to me, but it's just not bizarre. Like, he just complete, like, I don't know what happened. Like, if he just skimmed it off the top or something. But we get a movie that is this G-rated, incredibly wholesome Disney Plus anchor is basically what it turns into. Uh, there's still a part of me that's just baffled by David Lynch would work with Disney. Like, what is a more <clears throat> unlikely director, uh, producer <laughs> relationship that I could imagine? I don't know if I can. Wasn't wasn't Twin Peaks on ABC? Um, I honestly don't remember, but it, it, <laughs> so maybe I'm just talking nonsense but here. It feels let's, weird. Let's, 
Let's find out. Um, yeah, ABC. Although, wait, how long has Disney had ABC? <laughs> I think they had it in the 90s. Okay, well, anyway, regardless, I'm still like, it's still just weird to hear Lynch and Disney in the same. Mm-hmm. Like, especially the 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 movie output, because, right, there's automatically, like, ABC, owned by or not, can have sort of its own thing going on. Um but like we expect something when we hear Disney movie. Like there's a whole type of movie we expect and for Lynch to fit into that, like I don't know. This isn't totally the point, but like that just stands out to me as like another bit of weird, but yeah, Tim. Okay, so other Disney movies from nineteen ninety nine, my favorite Martian and Inspector Gadget. Like that's that's what you expect from Disney in nineteen ninety nine. Not this incredibly heartfelt David Lynch movie. Da 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 Inspector Gadget. <laughs> yeah, it is the Broderick one. Anyway. Yeah, I want to watch both of these now, but is there more you want to say about either, or is it spiel time? <laughs> uh, no, I can I can definitely spiel if you are if you're ready to go. Yeah, let's spiel it up. <laughs> All right, so. In honor of Spartacus, the Swords and Sandals movie from Stanley Kubrick, which doesn't really seem to fit in the rest of that filmography, but also definitely does because it resembles him, and yet doesn't because the subject matter just doesn't feel very much like him. Our theme this week is Directors Out of Type, uh, and the two movies in front of us are in that same kind of mold. You know, the, the hallmarks of the director are there, but the themes... Uh, maybe done differently or just sort of approached in a in a new way for that person. So the first option was Starman from 1984, the John Carpenter movie, and where so much of John Carpenter's um, John Carpenter's output has this sort of like I don't know fist shaking middle finger up against the the establishment or against normal people or against authority or what have you. Um, this movie keeps that, sort of, but on the most, for the most part, the people in it are are straight arrow types, are are people who feel deep emotions that we don't like to make fun of very much. There is a there is a definite absence of that sardonic wit that you come to expect in Carpenter, and on the other hand, we have the straight story uh, directed by David Lynch, uh, based on a true story a film about a guy driving his riding mower. And for as often as we expect David Lynch to be synonymous with the weird and the strange and the uncanny, um, this movie is overwhelmingly shot in Midwestern sunshine with happy Midwestern folks just ready to lend a hand to a guy who is unable to drive himself via car to see his ailing brother and so has to get on the riding mower to do it instead. Um, So what's different about this one? just really isn't weird at all. Just completely normal in a lot of ways that don't feel very Lynchian. So, Matt, what do you have? What do you think? So, both sound really good. I'm sad I haven't seen them yet. Speaking of Kubrick, these are two other directors I should go for the 100% with. Mm -hmm. Like That just (laughs) feels like a thing I should have done already. But anyway... um, I'm going to pick the straight story here, uh, if only because my brain fought that one for so long. as like, no, the shoe's <laughs> going to fall somewhere. Like, there's a bottom to drop out. <laughs> um, and I don't know, I think that reaction speaks to, well, that seems like a lynch out of type to some degree. That there's a type I expect, and he is not fulfilling it here, so my brain is trying to take this elsewhere. Um I think, you know, we spoke to how Starman is different from a lot of other Carpenter stuff um, and how that's profound in its own way. Um, so I, I think that's a great fit. And it was, I'm still a little bit mad. You're making me choose between these two directors, even if I haven't seen either movie yet. Um, but yeah, I think just my, like, more than initial, no, there's something else here about straight story is going to send that one through if we're thinking about out of type. Yeah, neither one of these, I think, fits the fits the mold pretty well. Um, and I, I did want to pick 
not that there weren't like other options for like movies that didn't really feel like the director classically. Um, but I did, you know, with Kubrick, who is unfairly maligned as one of the dude bro directors, I did kind of feel like it was appropriate to get two of his fellow unfairly maligned dude bros in there. You know, the, for whatever reason, these people who attract the loudest, ugliest type of internet guy, um, and showing that all three of them really did have a kind of, a kind of range and a kind of, I think, I think in all three of these movies, a kind of genuine humanity, um, that maybe is not ascribed to them as easily as it, as it ought to be. And at least for Carpenter at lunch, like a gentler streak too, that it doesn't have to be all sardonic oppression or all weird all the time that, um, you know, basic humanity is something simple and caring and heartfelt and like just gentler in a way. Um, I'm I, I'm glad you picked two directors with also fairly unique styles as well. Mm-hmm. Um, that right, their movies are always them, but what are they taking on and putting around that? Um, <clears throat> especially with Kubrick as the like prompter here. Like, I, I think that was a good choice having two fairly unique and esoteric dudes to pick between. Um, I was going to say something else and I forgot what it was. So moving on. (laughs) All right. So this week, one more time for the people in the back, our theme was directors out of type. Uh, The original AFI movie Spartacus and between Starman and the straight story, Matt has uh, given us the straight flush and, and chosen David Lynch's 1999 movie. So if you liked what you heard, if you wanted to go back and maybe listen to part one of this episode where Matt talked about Doolittle and the Pixies and, and how important they are uh, as, a, as a band and how their influence is felt, you can go back and listen to part one of this. You could also check us out on our website, subtitlespodcast.com. Subtitlespodcast.com has, among other things a running list of the movies and albums we've talked about. It's got links to both of our blogs. It's got a link to Matt's Spotify. It has a link to my Letterboxd. Um, And it gives you a sense of where the project came from and why we are up to it. We'll see you next time.